0: You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change.
1: Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast with Nori. I'm Ross Kenyon. I'm one of the co-founders of Nori and the creative editor there. Today I have with me Steve Lohr, president and CEO of J. Lohr Vineyards and Wines. Thanks for being here, Steve.
0: Oh, it's great to be
1: with you, Ross. I am happy to have you here. I've been greedy for any sort of viticulture winemaking shows. Uh, Lately, I have uh, been around wine for a good chunk of my life, but only recently become somewhat more intellectually interested in it. So I'm happy to have a chance to talk more about what it means to be sustainable uh, within viticulture and what all that looks like. And it sounds like you're doing quite a lot over there.
0: It's an important thing for us and you know, when you think about it, um, sustainability is important, not only in the wine industry, all industries and for all of our lives. So the more we can understand that, the better off we all are. Certainly, I think that's true.
1: I think a good place to start might be to explain what JLore is. I imagine people are somewhat familiar with these labels if they not actually drank your wines before. Uh, what What niche do you see yourself as serving within the wine market?
0: Yeah, so we are essentially a Central uh, Coast-focused winery. We have a vineyard up in Napa as well, uh, right in St. Helena. Um, But we started off planting vineyards in 1972 in Monterey County. I was just a little guy at the time helping my father plant our first 280 acres. And uh, at that time, We were doing cool climate varieties like Chardonnay and Riesling that Monterey has traditionally done. But we also wanted to plant some Bordeaux varieties uh, like Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot and such. And whereas our area of Monterey was fantastic, being cool climate for uh, things like Chardonnay, Pinot Blanc, Riesling, Valdigier, we were just too cool to properly ripen the big reds. So. In 1984, we did a sure thing, and that was to buy an existing vineyard right on the Silverado Trail in St. Helena. But then we were also really intrigued by some of the uh, Cabernet coming out of Paso Robles. And so in 1986, we started planting Bordeaux and later Rhone grapes in Paso. Today, we basically have wines that sell anywhere from $13 to $100 a bottle.
1: I think many people can imagine what it's like to be the equivalent of being a farm to table producer with a winemaker who maybe manages only a couple fields, a pretty small operation boutique, one might say. But what's it like having a much larger scale winemaking operation? What changes as you get bigger?
0: Well, you certainly need to understand your processes that much more because any mistakes you potentially make and you're going to make them. If you're not making them, you're not pushing the envelope. Any of those mistakes get magnified and become more expensive. Uh, so, and especially, you know, when your last name's on the label, you don't want to do anything to mess that up because it um, it takes at least a decade or so to really build a reputation, but you can destroy it in in one
1: vintage. We had wine educator Paul Wagner on not too long ago. And he was saying that small winemakers, there's a lot more variability involved. Sometimes they'll capture lightning in a bottle, sometimes the vintage will be very poor. And um, he was saying as scale goes up, for winemakers, it's really important to have consistency, and have quality control in a way that is not present for smaller
0: winemakers. Do you agree with that assessment? Well, I would generally agree with it, yes. Uh, doesn't mean that small wine winemakers can't have um, equal success. But one thing we are known for is our consistency. And in part, um, I would attribute it to my father. Both Jerry and I are, are civil engineers by education. So we very much are into analysis and understanding what makes something work on a, on a small scale level. And then once we understand that, uh, scaling it up. And uh just so happens that our VP of winemaking, Steve Peck, is also a chemical engineer before he became a winemaker. So having a thorough understanding of what makes something work and quickly being able to identify issues and solving them is very important for long-term viability. Uh, Yeah, As I was reading
1: through your materials, the engineering background certainly caught my eye. That seems much too Apollonian, uh, an intellectual pedigree to uh, do winemaking. But I guess surely one becomes, maybe you don't like this framing, less of an artist, but more of an engineer and scientist as scale becomes more important. Consistency becomes more important. um, And you sort of have to treat it more as a science than as an art. I suspect you don't like that, my framing of that, though.
0: (laughs) Oh, no, that that's just fine, Ross. So really, I, I think of wine as half science and half art. And best are both when they're shared.
1: <laughs> yeah, I certainly think that's true. Um, I've seen people attribute, especially with every wine out of Georgia, it being uh, described as extremely wild. But I've also had more bottles of that that I've found undrinkable. Maybe I'm just a... Uh, a naive and I don't know what I'm doing. But uh I feel like the highs have been higher and the lows lower than some of the I don't know the the kinks are worked out more with a system that is a bit more engineered than you know I've heard it described as wild is the most common adjective I've heard for that region. So maybe maybe that applies here too.
0: Yeah. And you say Georgia, are you talking American Georgia or Russian Georgia?
1: Yeah, uh yeah Central Asian Georgia of their uh-huh. Amphora fermented wines
0: sure sure well you know the nice thing is that uh wine is produced all over the world and i love all the variations that come with not only the different grapes and there are five thousand varieties of grapes around of wine grapes uh, around the world uh some of them are just down now to a few acres or a few hectares so uh it's very important to be able to keep those because you know what worked a few hundred years ago may not be as popular now but it could come back in 50 years plus it's just so fun to try all those things but also the different cultural makeups yes wine making is fermentation and that's pretty standard but there are little things that you can do to affect that fermentation to really bring out certain flavors you know, whether you're using natural yeast or uh, yeast that you buy uh, from manufacturers. So, so many different things that you can do. And uh, we're blessed to be here in California or, you know, the U.S. in general, because we have some great universities that specialize in great growing and winemaking. And so that replicability to be able to make sure you're doing things well year after year is um coming right out of the students coming out of universities and we certainly do a lot within our own wineries both j lore and the wine industry as a whole to emphasize that
1: Something you said caught my ear about um, 5,000 varietals out there. I think every so often, one or or many of them will become rediscovered and they might just be on one family farm on some hilltop in Spain or something and then the world will become obsessed with them. Is that understanding correct? Is that still happening? And if so, what's, what's coming
0: next? Any ideas? Yes. Absolutely, you have it, Ross. I think Muscat is is a great example. Uh, Tremendously popular in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And then it kind of disappeared for a while. Um, And that really helped Riesling and Gewurztraminer, another similar sweet to they can actually be dry wines as well. But let's just say off sweet, off dry, there's that whole realm they flourished in the 90s and the early 2000s but here a number of years ago muscat made a another run and it uh really did a number on the, on the riesling category oh my gosh you know we've been growing great riesling out of monterey for 48 years now and uh our sales took a hit when muscat had its reign several years ago but not to take anything away from the muscat producers, but that kind of uh, tidal wave has come and gone and now Riesling is thriving again. So that's just one of many examples of a, of a grape variety that uh, was strong, that went away, came back and now is on the decline. If you missed that wave,
1: uh, how long does it take to to plant new vines to catch up? Or if you are thinking that way, are you too late by the time your vines mature?
0: <laughs> yeah, good good question. You know, there's this kind of cycle. And when you plant a grapevine, let's say you plant in spring of one year, you're going to get your first harvest two and a half years later. And you're not going to get full uh, yields until five years after planting. And, you know, you hope to have your grapevine last on average 25 to 30 years. So it's similar to, you know, a generation of a of a human. So you have to have a long-term outlook on things. Problem is when these waves come and people start planting, by the time that fifth year comes around, maybe they've already hit the peak or the peak of that wave has ridden and you are dealing now with excess. And traditionally, there has been a cycle in the wine industry about seven to 10 years where the overall industry goes through a boom or bust cycle. Uh, In other words, grapes can be harder to get for wineries, and so growers will plant more. And then within three, four, five, six years or so, there's a balance between what wineries need and what growers have. But because of all those grapes are planted uh, years before, now there's an excess, um, which can be good for the consumer. Prices come down for the wines, uh, not as good for the growers because prices go down for their grapes and uh, then people either don't. Replace their vineyards with that have older vines, and then vines come out of production, and then that kind of balance shifts. And uh, now the growers are are in charge with uh, fewer grapes, and they can charge more. So that whole cycle within the twenty-five to thirty-year life of a vine, you're going to have anywhere from three to four of these cycles, typically. So it's interesting to kind of forecast that. And one of the things I studied in college, I was an economics major and a civil engineering major, but in economics, you do a lot of forecasting. So that certainly helps in our business.
1: Yeah, another piece of advice I got from Paul Wagner was that dessert wines, especially, are out of fashion right now. So you can get great deals on on port and sherry and uh, things of that nature. And so I've been enjoying finding very nice bottles for less than I would expect. I had a nice uh, straw wine from South Africa recently that I found delightful. And uh, I'm trying to take advantage of that until it becomes cool again to like sweet wines. And then I'll have to find something else where uh, where that changes. Relatedly, were you were you well positioned to take advantage of the rosé boom or did you guys uh, miss that one?
0: you know it's interesting uh ross because uh we chose to miss it quite frankly we do have a small production of rosé which is direct to consumer in other words it doesn't make it out into stores or, or restaurants but we saw this huge tsunami coming in part because france you know went through it earlier and france today yeah they have more rosé than they do white wine it's that big a deal and when you go to your uh, store shelves now you see a huge diversity of rosés and that's great it's it's fun to choose from it but we looked at what our strengths were and we figured leave that to other people who are better suited for it hmm
1: I saw that you are growing, um, I saw some Grenache in there within this collection mm-hmm. too. So it's not like you don't have, you know, classically rosé uh, grapes, right? But you just said, we're going to make just regular reds out of them.
0: That's right. Um, and we make a, a beautiful Grenache rosé, but again, it's it's very limited in, in production. And because it's not part of really what I would call one of our strengths beyond you know, a thousand cases or 2000 cases, we decided to focus our efforts on Cabernet and Chardonnay. So in Monterey, we're primarily a Chardonnay house, um, but also have Riesling, um, Pinot Blanc, um, a very rare French red called Baldigier, which is like a Pinot Noir on steroids. And then in Paso Robles, it's those big reds like, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Petit Verdot, as well as the Rhone, Syrah, again, Grenache Noir, Mourvedre, Viognier, and, and such. So, we've got plenty. We make um, about 35 different wines altogether.
1: For a couple of those varietals, are you forecasting big changes? I've heard some rumblings of, you know, I associate with California Cab, more tannin than you would ever really want in some cases, like really bold, <laughs> really aggressive, and then, Chardonnay, oaky, malolactic fermentation, like appley, buttery, things like this. Are, are is that? Are people still leaning into getting as much of those flavors as they can, or those experiences, or is it changing somehow?
0: Absolutely. So that's another example of of a wave. So back in the '70s and, and '80s, um, Chardonnays tended to be pretty buttery and and oaky. And then over the years, maybe a little less oak. And sometimes people would put a little more oak or oak, what we call adjuncts, which are little additives. Maybe they're not aging their Chardonnay in barrels, which we do with 100% of our Chardonnay. But quite frankly, that traditional small barrel winemaking, that's only done with about three to four percent of all wines worldwide. And sometimes it's by choice. Uh, for instance, that that Chardonnay that is unoaked, uh, that's a big popular style where you're just really tasting the fruit of the Chardonnay. And I encourage everybody to, to do that just so you see what Chardonnay tastes like without the oak. And with Cabernet, you are so right. Again, when I was a, a young guy, uh, it was all about how big can you make your Cabernets. And then we came into more balance, but writers often really give higher scores to bigger cabs, And so the key thing there, especially today, is to get a nicely extracted Cabernet, and I'm talking about fruit presence here, without so much tannin that it just hits you over the face. And there's so much that you can do in terms of how you ferment your grapes and how old the barrels are, how much time your Cabernet and other red wines spend in barrels to affect that tannin. The best wines are balanced wines, where you have enough tannin there to support the wine, but not to overtake the grapefruit of the wine. Given your focus,
1: at least partially on Chardonnay, do you ever find ways to imitate old world Chablis, or do you try to stick to the California style?
0: Mm, yeah, so Old World Chablis uh, would be a lighter style of, of Chardonnay. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a big demand for that. But at the same time, we don't try to quite replicate that. <laughs> Go for a Sauvignon Blanc if you want something that has more acidity to it, more crispness. You want your acidity in, in your Chardonnay, and that's one of the reasons Monterey and other cool climate areas within California, you know, whether that's Carneros or down in Santa Barbara or Edna Valley, all these parade places to grow uh, Chardonnay all have a lot of natural acidity in, in those wines. So with that acidity, you can balance it with some oak. Again, not too much. Otherwise, you're going to clobber that grapefruit and acidity.
1: The minerality that I associate with Chablis is in where you're growing Chardonnay in California. Is it less present? Is that one of the reasons why you don't do that as much? Or is it deeper than that?
0: Yeah, it, it can still be present. Absolutely. There's great minerality in many California wine-growing regions that'll show up for Chardonnay or Pinot Blanc or a number of other whites. Uh, it's just kind of what style that you like. And uh, we tend to like a, a richer fruit style uh that's even on the goes beyond the traditional pear and apple and gets into the tropical, you know, with papaya and guava and even passion fruit. Flavors. So with that, uh, there's some oak to kind of coddle that fruit and present it to you on a tray. You
1: had mentioned additives. I have some mixed feelings towards, but again, I'm, I'm newer to wine. And Paul Wagner also tried to talk me out of associating this too heavily with a sustainability focus or in thinking that it like I felt like my framing of it was unduly favorable towards natural winemaking, whatever that means. I know people define it differently. Is there much interaction between uh, this manipulation and additives and sustainability, or is that a sort of holdover from how we think about organic foods somehow?
0: Ooh, that's pretty cool. As far as additives, there are things you can add to wine, but in general, most, I would even say the great majority of people add very little, if anything, uh, to wine. Um, the best wines have really no additives. They're just taking the grape juice uh the yeast, whether that's just natural being on the grape skins or floating in the air at the winery uh we do some of our wines on with natural uh yeast as well, or for that consistency sometimes you you buy yeast. but you know there are certain additives um that we would never do. For instance, you can affect the color of the wine by adding a great concentrate, which will give you a lot more color and sometimes a higher alcohol. But to me, that is kind of cheating. You know, if you have a Pinot Noir, which is a nice, delicate red wine, don't try and and make a huge, big Pinot Noir by adding Syrah or you know this additive called Mega Purple, um, which is this uh, great concentrate of something called Ruby Red because then you're taking away from the, the pleasure of what is truly Pinot Noir. And similarly for many other varieties of wine, best wines are ones that don't have any additives whatsoever.
1: Am I wrong to associate those practices with larger commercial brands? Is that typically where it's found, or is it everywhere, or distributed?
0: Yeah, yeah. So I would say it's distributed around, but um, you know, people who have access or or think about those maybe tend to go toward the the larger side. But there are many of us, and we don't think of ourselves as large. Uh, we're we're really kind of upper medium sized. Um, but it's one of those things that's kind of like a badge of honor, you know, just
1: don't cheat. <laughs> I'm amazed you use, uh, natural yeast or, uh, rather than commercial yeast. That seems like a huge risk for you. How do you, given your engineering and finance background, that seems like something that would probably make you pretty
0: spooked. well so uh, what's interesting is that we will have natural yeast and we'll do this on on many of our higher-end wines especially actually chardonnays as as we're on the subject here but then it's fun to see what little differences that makes from one vintage to another and then we do something that's kind of a hybrid, if you will, in that we'll take our natural yeast and then replicate it within our winery. So we have these yeast cultures, these tanks that are all about just growing more natural yeast. And uh, so that way, if you happen to have a lot that comes in, a lot of grapes that is, that doesn't have much of that natural yeast, that um, you can add some of it and still be natural, still get those wonderful natural flavors, but again, in a more replicable way.
1: Is this in stainless steel that you're keeping this? Yep, Mm. you got it. Hmm, okay. There's a lot of interesting sustainability practices that you got going on uh, across the operation. Um, I wanna talk about water. We don't talk that much about water on this show, and that's probably Mm -hmm. a defect of mine that should be fixed. But I don't think people associate water as a big problem for winemaking in general, except that maybe they're in arid places. Typically, you're thinking Mediterranean climates. I think that association is real. But maybe set the groundwork for understanding water and, and wine. And I'll avoid the obvious Jesus joke. We'll just move right past it. Everyone, <laughs> if, you, if you say those two words too closely together, people are going to think it guaranteed. It's impossible not to.
0: Right. Well, so water is crucial for winemaking. There are some vineyards that can be dry farmed, and that's especially nice with some old Zinfandel vines You know that can get to be 60, 80, even 100 years old. Their roots are so deep, and maybe they're in an area with a heavy enough uh, soil and enough rainfall that they don't need any other Where irrigation. Where is
1: that? That's amazing. I didn't even know that
0: happens. Mm-hmm. It does. It does. And, and those are special, wonderful situations. But if we depended upon just dry farming, one, there wouldn't be enough wine to go around and it would be super expensive. So most of the industry irrigates, and I say most, we're talking like 98 plus percent of the industry here in, in California will do some sort of irrigation, even if it's just once or twice during the course of the of the growing season. And one of the nice things about California is that uh, because we tend to be a little drier than, say, other parts of the old world, we can dial in just what it takes to uh, really grow the best-tasting wine grapes. You can have an issue with too much water. Either it can cause too much vegetative growth, which means your canopy which are your canes and your leaves, are, are growing much more than the reproductive part of the vine, which are the grapes. And if the energy is being put into growing longer canes, the energy is not being put so much into properly ripening the grapes, and they're not getting their sun exposure that they need to really increase their flavors. At the same time, water throughout California and throughout the West, and in general, uh, it's becoming more scarce. And I'll say especially California, Oregon and Washington are a little better with their water sources. But here in in California, it's it's dwindling. And I know that when we came to Paso Robles in 1986, underneath Paso is one of the largest aquifers, uh, which is like an underground water reservoir, but natural. Uh, one of the largest aquifers on the west coast and so many of us thought oh we have unlimited water here but as more and more people planted and put their straws in the ground and pumped out groundwater uh, that has become more scarce so for sustainability reasons as well as quality reasons we look to always seeing what we can do to use less water and the best Wines are made from grapes that are stressed. And the key thing there is getting that very fine balance between stressing the vines enough so that they're focusing more on reproductive growth, but not stressing them so much that you get shriveling of berries, which is gonna give you more pruny flavors in your wine, more stewed fruit flavors, or worse, hurt the vine enough that it's more susceptible to disease either that harvest or in future harvests.
1: Is this stress level something akin to, I'm going to probably die, I should try to get my children off while I can? Is it something, is that the evolutionary impulse?
0: Absolutely, Ross, you you got it, yeah. Don't let me die out before I can spread my seed. And that's how grapes were traditionally spread. You know, the whole reason for having the grapes is that so birds can come by and when it's nice and sweet, they'll pick at those great clusters, um, get the juice and the process, swallows some seeds and they'll go fly off somewhere and drop those seeds and that great vine starts again. I planted a couple of uh, vines
1: before this summer. I planted a Pinot cultivar that is suited for the Pacific Northwest and a Gewürztraminer. But I've also been watering them a lot because we're about to go into a pretty nasty heat wave here. I imagine you probably are too down there. And um, maybe I've been bivying them too much. Maybe I need to uh, stress them out and let them get scorched a tiny bit. I guess I don't know where that limit is. I think I'm likely to overshoot one direction or the other, though.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, here we are in, in July. And where's home for you, Ross? In Seattle. In Seattle. Yeah. Yeah. So whether you're up in Seattle or down here in California, you know, this time of year, late July, you definitely shouldn't have any growing shoot tips or having little tendrils at, at the end of your canes. If, if you do have either one of those, you're, you're watering too much and, and cut back on it. It's best to let those basil leaves, which are the leaves at the bottom of the cane, start to die, back, to die back a bit, you know, become a little yellow and such. But if you still have your cane tips growing, that's a signal that let the water come back because now it's time to ripen those grapes. If
1: they're still so young, I'm pretty sure they were started probably last year when i bought them yeah so they're probably close to a year old i was so should i just be trying to get volume here and getting them growing in general so because they're not making any fruit right now yeah
0: okay then just forget what i said (laughs) so just let let them (laughs) rip okay yeah at at this point just go ahead and get that root system established um being just a year old it's all about growing out getting good photosynthesis so that you're building up your stores of carbohydrates to get through your winter But you do want to make sure that they're still not growing when it comes to the fall. And whenever you get your freeze locally, you want those vines to be shutting down. You don't want them to still be green.
1: Okay, cool. Well, thanks for that advice there. So long as we are talking about watering and grapes, I've read various things about how water is priced in California, especially for agriculture, can be odd and strike an outsider as strange. Like I've heard water for agricultural purposes is, I think, an order of magnitude cheaper than for residential usage or something like that. Is that true? Does that encourage more water use than it really should? You're an economist, you have a background there. Surely people respond to those incentives. Uh, Should we be growing as much as we do in California if water is not accurately priced
0: in that way? Yeah, good question. So 50% of the nation's fruits and vegetables and 80 to 85% of the nation's wine comes from California. So agriculture is huge in in California. Now I know it's big up in Washington state as well. Uh, you're one of the largest producers in, in the country too. But how much water is charged? Totally depends upon where in the state you are. So, you know, when you get charged for water for your house, you're typically charged by 100 cubic feet. And in agriculture, we think of acre feet. So, in other words, an acre foot is imagine one acre, which is 43,560 square feet, filled up 12 inches. That's an acre foot of water. And You know, in some parts of California, that can be as cheap as 15, 20, $25 an acre foot. And some parts it's well over $1,000 an acre foot. So it's strictly a question of supply and demand. Sustainability really comes into play here as well, because you wanna make sure that agriculture and residential uh, uses both have access. Um and but yeah, in California, about eighty to eighty-five percent of the water is is used for agriculture. So there are always potential water wars that could heat up. I'd say that was more of an issue maybe twenty, thirty years ago, especially when we were debating about canals taking delta water, which is the area east of San Francisco, taking snow melt from the sierras and then sending that down south we have the california aqueduct which is the single largest use of electricity in the world because we're pumping all that water from the north to get it down to the south and you know that's fine everybody needs water but um as far as how do you price it that is very, very dependent upon individual, either water districts or our counties and the balance of water that they have.
1: Well, tell me more about what you're what you're working on. I saw there's a lot of work on solar. Uh, there's water conservation work, a lot of biodiversity using natural pest control. Yeah, give us a little taste of that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Solar is is a big deal for us. When I was um, a student, um, I had. This professor in civil engineering at Stanford, his name was Gil Masters, and he had this great book called Other Homes and Garbage. And you know, this is back in in the 1980s. And at that time, uh, you know, it was certainly a lot about recycling. It was also about how do you site your home to take advantage of the sun during the winter, but also have no shade during the summer, that you're not having to run your AC so much. But also, photovoltaics were, were really coming to play. Now, in the 80s, they weren't economically viable yet. They were more just kind of an interesting thing that would happen in the future. But in the mid-2000s, we were putting on some workshops with our local utility, Pacific Gas and Electric, or PGE. and and uh you know i just got to thinking we have 320 days of sunshine per year in paso robles it easily gets to 95 to 100 degrees during the, the summer and we use a huge amount of energy for our fermentation tanks to keep them cool and also our barrel rooms because we like I said earlier are highly dependent on using traditional oak barrel by uh, aging for the reds and fermentation and aging for uh, Chardonnay. Start looking at, at solar and the possibilities. You know, do we go with a fixed solar or a solar tracking array where The panels face the east in the morning, and then as the sun rotates through the sky during the day, your panels are always facing the sun. In the end, this is now 2007, chose to go with a solar tracking ray because it's 15% more efficient than a fixed array, which is just always facing south. And uh, so we had a bill for our electric use of basically over half a million dollars a year prior to putting in the solar tracking array. And our first full year of use, our total bill was $250. So it's certainly important for sustainability in that, yes, you're not burning fossil fuels somewhere to power your winery. But what's also nice is over the years, we've also had brownouts or blackouts. And if you're Creating your own electricity, you are now insulated from that in, in more ways than one. This
1: show is certainly guilty of this, but there's a tendency to fetishize the small and uh, little boutique producers and farmers. But I think if anyone's ever worked at a small company before, I've I've worked at some that were quite dysfunctional and not great, and in some cases would have been improved by scale and better management and oversight as well. And so I think there might be a back to the land ethos built into some of the listenership of this podcast. What things do you think improve with scale environmentally at an operation like yours? Or are there parts where you think, wow, this is a problem that would be much more solvable were we not nearly
0: so large? I support all levels of farming, whether it's the one or two person small farm or hundreds of employees, everybody has their place. And one of the nice things about sustainability is you can be any size. I'm on the board of the California Sustainable Wine Drawing Alliance, which actually spreads best business practices for vineyards and wineries statewide so that they can become more sustainable. And the nice thing is you can be, you know, again, a very small grower or winery But you can jump on the sustainability train at any point. Uh, Just so happens that our CSWA book has 16 different chapters from soil health to water efficiency, energy efficiency, community even, because when we think of sustainability, we think of the three E's, environment, social equity, which is how you treat your employees and your community. And then the part most people forget is economics. Because quite frankly, if you can't make a buck at whatever you're doing, you won't be around too long. And by definition, that's not sustainable. So anybody can start in on this point. But with scale, you're able to do a few more things. So for instance, our solar tracking array, when we built that back in 2007, 2008 timeframe, that was a $5.4 million expense. And with scale, you can afford that because you can see that, yeah, after seven years, this is gonna have a positive ROI. In other words, we're not paying any energy uh, expenses or very little from year seven through 25, which is basically how long these, these solar cells last another thing you can do with scale is water use so when we first started really tracking our water use back in 2003 it was most typical for wineries to use five to seven gallons of water to make one gallon of wine but as we took a look at what we could do to use less water and there Is low-hanging fruit, such as you know, high pressure, low-flow nozzles on your hoses, squeegeeing up your spills rather than spraying them with water down and drain, behavioral things such as how long does it really take to wash out a barrel, properly time it, and then keep track of that. And our our environmental fellow at our house Railways winery puts a little smiley face whenever people use, you know, less water than what's expected on on a calendar. So things like that that you can do. So very quickly, we got our use from three and a half gallons of water to make one gallon of wine down to anywhere from 1.3 to 1.6 gallons of water to make one gallon of wine. And so in that sense, it's a little more sustainable.
1: I think anyone listening can hear the obvious cost savings of some of these longer term capital investments, like a solar array. That makes sense. We're also just using less inputs means that there's either uh, you can charge a lower price or you can charge the same price and have a higher profit. How much of that drives the decision making to be sustainable versus the marketing elements of being able to, for instance, come on this podcast and talk about wine people can buy. And if you were just a regular winemaker. There'd be less opportunity to come on podcasts or otherwise toot that horn. I don't know. Is it possible
0: to determine which is wagging here? Which one is working? Oh, yeah. Tough question. Um, You know, sustainability in the long run is cheaper. You're using fewer inputs and material costs, as well as utilities, whether that's electrical, gas, water, that's only going to get more expensive with time. So to use less of it is a good thing, not only for your company, but more importantly, it's just the right thing to do for your community and and the world as a whole. For us at J. Lord, the latter is really what's driving things. I mean, it's nice to have a, a better margin, but This is a generational enterprise. We want to make sure that we turn it over to our children in as good or better a shape than how we found it. With more people in the world using more resources, it's just the right thing to do to use fewer of them and still make great wine.
1: Is the marketing element of it not so valuable or less valuable than one might think?
0: You know... I would say it is important, uh very important, really, because sustainability as more and more people understand it, and you know it's a difficult thing to understand it's not as well defined as say organic but it's also much broader. So there are many things that you can do and it gives you a little leeway. You know, you can spray the occasional thing you may need to spray just to make sure something doesn't blow up in your in your vineyard, either from a fungus or an insect standpoint. But again, you really try and, and avoid doing that. But sustainability gives you that little bit of leeway to, to do it. But people want to support companies um, that think like they do and so if you care about the environment if you care about the future if you care about you know the health of and well-being of people in the community yeah you want to support companies who have similar ways of thinking so i think it's from a marketing standpoint it's absolutely crucial
1: i've seen much less organic wine than other types of agricultural products i see more biodynamic wines which is related but a bit more esoteric and and strange one might say is winemaking just that much harder to never use pesticide or herbicide is it just one of those products that you're really you're really stuck and you might need these resources is that what's happening here is it something else
0: yeah, no, it's you're, you're on the right track there, Russ. Um, and I think it's also important to distinguish um, organically grown grapes from organically made wine. So, organically grown grapes, power to you. That, that's wonderful. If you can do it, do it. My fruits and vegetables that I buy are almost wholly organic. With organic grapes, you need to be in certain areas and have certain conditions to, year after year, produce great quality grapes. And again, do it if you can do it. But it's not an easy thing to do. And the next step to make organic wine is even harder to do. I really take my hat off to those people who can do it. But without being at all prejudice and want to be very careful to my organic friends in the wine industry sometimes those wines cannot be as stable over you know a period of years and so especially if you're growing a, a wine that uh, you want to age for a number of years um yeah be, be careful there are, there are certain processes that you need to do in winemaking that would disqualify you from being organic but it's the way the Romans were making their wines. You're referring to sulfur,
1: ago. I think, right? This is, you're talking yeah, about sulfur? You got okay. it. You <laughs> got it. Why don't you explain this to the listeners who might not know why is sulfur important? Is, is sulfur just forbidden in organic winemaking? Pretty much, pretty
0: much. But um, yeah, sulfur is is important um, because it kills off little nasty things that could be growing in, in wine. And again, it's not a bad thing you want to try and use as small amount as you possibly can. And that's why in winemaking, cleanliness is next to godliness. You you want to make sure you don't have things growing in your winery other than just, say, natural yeast. Um, Because, you know, like Britannomyces or some other things that you'll commonly find in older caves in Europe. But here in the New World, in part because we are newer or also, because I think we really want to make sure that we don't have some of those characteristics that some people enjoy, but, you know, I'm not looking for barnyard or manure in, in any of my wines, and that's part of Britannomyces. You you wind up using some, and the key thing is, just like water, don't use any more than you absolutely have to.
1: What other processes are forbidden by organic winemaking that you think are either essential for good winemaking in general, especially for wine that you might keep for a long period of time, or for the amount of consistency and scale that you need to make your operation financially viable?
0: Well, so, um, you know, I take it back to the vineyards, actually. And in organic um, grape growing, you cannot use any synthetic insecticides, which I'm all for that. Again, sustainability gives you a little bit of leeway if you need to do some spot spraying. And depending upon what program you may follow or even be certified to, that will be a different level of, um, of flexibility. We prefer actually to keep a balance of natural predators like spiders and other mites that will eat dust mites and other bad things for, for grapes. So we we really don't. Uh, use, or I should say, very, very, very rarely use insecticides. Also, if you're organic red growing, uh, then that means you would never use an herbicide, and that too is is good. Uh, We use cover crops so that we don't have to worry so much about weeds. But also, when you uh, do have to use a tractor to till your vines underneath, or the, the soil underneath your vines, then you're using some sort of fossil fuel generally, and that's creating more greenhouse gas emissions. So there's this balance uh, that you always have to take into account. And you know, organic uh, doesn't really say anything about air quality and greenhouse gas emissions are, are huge. So that's where sustainability gives you a bit of an edge.
1: Uh, How much wiggle room is there for not being a monoculture? Is there room for having diverse fields of various types of crops or other plants? Or is winemaking constrained by the economics or geography somehow?
0: You know, it is good to not have a monoculture. For instance, we do plant pollinator habitats in, in some of our vineyards so that pollinators um, and grain grapevines are self-pollinating so you know having an, a nice bee population is not as crucial for us as it might be for some nut growers or or tree fruit but uh nevertheless you you do want bees to be around because they're important for virtually everything else and you want there to be a balance of beneficial insects, so yeah, we will plant, you know, lavender and and other drought-tolerant plants in uh, certain areas of our vineyards, so that those beneficial insects have a little resting spot, if you will. It becomes a little hard sometimes when uh, land prices have become so high in some well-known appellations. It's hard not to have a monoculture. But that's where keeping what force you may have are, are so crucial so that uh, you do have a balance. If everything is grapes, yeah, on the one hand, that's pretty, but it's even prettier when you have trees and other things mixed into it.
1: If someone listening wants to experience some of the wines, especially some of them that are coming from this uh, sustainability initiative of yours, how should they, they buy them? How, where should they start?
0: Yeah, well, so if you are going to your wine shop or maybe your grocery store, check and see if they have a sustainable wine uh, section. That's a great place to start because, um you know, typically, especially if you go into a, a, a nice wine shop or grocery store, you'll have hundreds or even thousands of choices. And it can be overwhelming for most people. Now, where do you start? Maybe first you start in that sustainable section, and then there will be Cabernets, and Chardonnays, and Syrahs, and Rieslings, and Chenin Blancs that are all sustainably grown and or made. So take a look uh, for certain seals that show that that vineyard or winery has gone through a process. For us here in in California, we have lots of different groups. Again, California Sustainable Wine Growing Alliance is kind of like an umbrella group. It's where uh, it actually, between it and the other regional groups, about 80% of California vineyards are certified sustainable. And about 80% of the wines are produced in a certified sustainable winery. Because many of us, kind of medium to, to larger scale, have really adopted it and pushed the industry forward. And about 35, 40% of the vineyards are certified sustainable. So look for those logos. Other ones here in California would be Vineyard Team has a SIP, a Sustainability and Practice Program or Lodi rules uh, for that area, Lodi, east of San Francisco. There's Napa Green. Oregon has Oregon Live. I know you've got additional programs up there in Washington. So look for people who either have those logos on the bottles or maybe on their accompanying literature. Because one thing that at the California Sustainable Wine Growing Alliance we stayed out of for many years was actually certifying the product. In other words, we would certify the process. And by certification, that means a third party auditor comes in and looks at all your records and makes sure that you're walking the walk. Because uh, there are about 250 different criteria we have to fulfill to get certified sustainable. But we didn't want to necessarily certify the product until just a few years ago. And that involves not only that audit of your vineyards and wineries practices but then it also means that uh, there's not a trail for all the grapes that went into that bottle of wine so you'll see a little circle that says certified california sustainable and that means a lot when it comes to uh, sustainable wine and again lots of other great programs around the country too
1: i'm trying to think of the wine shops in seattle that I've. Into then uh, even bigger stores like Total Wine. I feel like they're almost all organized by Varietal though. And I don't know mm-hmm. that I've seen that many sustainability or sustainable wine sections. Is that does that exist for wine shops where you are? Do you see that a lot?
0: We see it more and more. Uh, you're right, uh, Ross, it is primarily set by varietal. Then yeah, you just have to do a lot of looking um on the fronts or backs of those bottles. But more and more you're seeing sections of uh, sustainable wines or, of course, you know, as has been the case for years, um, restaurant menus, you know, they'll have a little mark that'll say uh, certified sustainable or certified organic or, as you mentioned earlier, biodynamic, which is still um, another way to go about growing your grapes.
1: Hmm. And if someone wanted to buy specifically these uh, sustainable Jaylor wines, where should they find them? Any bottles uh, within this collection that stand out to you? We, we did a big testing at Nori in prep for the show. And uh, the Merlot uh, was our personal favorite. Uh, we like the combination of the more medium bodied but it was quite spicy, too. Unexpectedly, I don't get that with Merlot a lot. So um, we really enjoyed that one.
0: Oh, that's great. Well, thank you so much, because I know you grow a lot of great Merlot in Washington. So I I really appreciate that, Ross. We have the majority of our wines certified sustainable. We were one of the first 17 vineyards and wineries in the state of California to become certified sustainable through the cswa but again this product certification is relatively new so out of our 36 wines uh, we have right now about 22 that are certified sustainable you can easily go to our site jlor.com and we actually parse them out as to which ones are certified sustainable the Merlot is a, is a prime example of one that is certified sustainable. Our major wine, our Seven Oaks Cabernet, that is getting really close. The only reason it's not there yet, and we do about a million cases a year of that one wine, whereas with anything Lore, the great majority of the fruit will be grown by us. But with that one particular wine, we do buy uh, from some other top grape growers in um, Paso Robles, and many of them are certified sustainable, but not all of them. So within the next year or two, we hope to have the certified sustainable logo to that wine as well.
1: Lots of luck with that. What's coming next in wine? What, can you make any predictions on, on the industry and what's, what's going to be the next big thing or some thoughts on uh, where you see the industry going?
0: Yeah. Oh, boy. So that's that's like key, key stuff there, Ross. Really, what we've been talking about here, sustainability is crucial. Whether it's California, Oregon, Washington, unless you're growing grapes in an area that doesn't have uh, water issues, that's going to become more and more of an issue. And so I think we're going to see a trend towards wines that tend to be maybe a little more balanced, if you will, um, in that uh, yields won't be quite as big as they once were because you won't have the water to, to grow as big a vine. And um, as a result, you're I think as a consumer, it's going to be a good thing for you because you'll get maybe slightly riper wines with smaller yields That Merlot that you're talking about. Yeah, that great blueberry and the other kind of baking spices that come from the oak barrels that we age in. You'll get more flavors like that. You know, it's funny to think of um, a reduction in resources improving the quality of wine, but I think we're going to have to. We're going to have to make better wine and maybe a little less of it. And, you know, quite frankly, that trends with where people are going these days they're not drinking as much alcohol as they did um, in the previous generation you need to drink less and and better
1: that's probably just good advice anyways that people should be doing you know you don't always need to drink well drinks and go for volume (laughs) sometimes it's nice to drink a nice bottle of wine that's okay too that's right Well, thank you so much for being here, Steve. Links to everything uh, is in the show notes if you'd like to check out some of those bottles or learn more about what J-Lore is up to. Uh, Thanks again for
0: being here, Steve. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Ross. Thanks for all your curiosity about wine and all things sustainable. Loved being with you. Yeah, I loved it too. If you can't
1: tell, I was very opportunistic about getting a chance to uh, learn more about wine by uh, getting paid for it at the same time. It's part of my job, so it's fun for me. (laughs) Uh, Thank you so much for listening. If you like what we do here, please tell a friend, uh, share it out on your social media uh, presences and give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for listening. If you could please subscribe and give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify, that'd be much appreciated. It helps us get our content out to more people. You can sign up for our newsletter at nori.com, follow us on social media, and we will catch you next time.